Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, Do you want to go do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you are pulling the weeds you may root up the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring into my barn. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all your seeds, yet when it grows it is the largest garden of it is the largest of garden plants, and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air came come and perch in its branches. He told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed it into a large amount of flour until it worked all through the dough. Jesus spoke all these things to the crowd in parables. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. So it was fulfilled that was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world. Then he left the crowd and went into the house. His disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the weeds in, in the field. He answered, The one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed stands for the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are the angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do, who do evil. They will throw them into a fiery furnace, where they will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had brought with it. Once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore. Then they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets, but threw the bad away. This is how it will be at the end of the, at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous, and throw them into the fiery furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? Jesus asked. Yes, they replied. He said to them, Therefore, every teaching, teacher of the law who has been instructed about the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old.
1995, Eric Cantona, a famous uh, soccer player in England, he played for Manchester United as a, as a forward, made news headlines around the world. When he leapt from the soccer field uh, and leapt onto uh, a fan in the stands. He gave a kung fu style kick that uh, landed in this abusive spectator's chest. And as a punishment, when he learned that he'd received 120 hours of community service teaching youngsters how to play football, uh, he broke his silence and he called a, a media conference the media, that is, that had been making money out of Eric Cantona, selling pictures and stories about what he'd been doing. At this packed media assembly, uh, he had them all there waiting with bated breath and this is what he said. You can see it in your outline. When seagulls follow the trawler, it's because they think sardines will be thrown into the sea. And then he strutted out uh, without saying another word. And some of the uh, conference uh, journalists laughed. They roared in laughter and others uh, giggled uncertainly. Now, who knows exactly what Eric Cantona was saying? But a more important question might be, who cares? <laughs> he was long gone. He's back in 1995 doing that kind of thing and uh, that's on the other side of the world. doesn't have a lot to do with us. But parables are like that, aren't they? Uh, the person who's communicating them is, has some kind of deep truth that they're getting across. And it's not always apparent on the surface, is it? It seems to be hidden. And so while some people are, are keen to sort of dig down and find out what they're about and get stuck into them, others are thinking, well, I just don't care enough about this parable or the person who's saying it anyway to even bother finding it out. This is what some people said about Cantona's parable. I think it's clearly relating to the media and all the people on his back all the time. But you never know with Cantona. And just so that you're not sitting there um, hopefully mulling over this ridiculous trawler parable, uh, this is my little take on it. I think Eric thinks of himself as the fishing trawler, that important, very useful engine, as we hear in uh, Thomas the Tank Engine stories, a very useful engine, that trawler. Uh, and he's, uh, the, uh, the, the media seems to be the seagulls, the rats of the sky, who are taking the sardines, which might be the stories or the, the things that Eric Canton is generating, uh, and he's not going to let them have another one. Well, that's a bit ironic because we've got another one anyway. Well, this is what somebody else said. It's hoped that Eric Cantona will be more transparent next week when he starts teaching youngsters to play ball. Well, it remains to be seen how good a coach he was, but he certainly spoke in a cryptic way. Well, in today's parable, we, uh, today's passage rather, it's nothing buttery, folks. That is, nothing but parables. Well, almost nothing but parables. Uh, we see Jesus in this text. He's standing in a boat uh, just offshore. Uh, well, actually, he's probably sitting because in those days the people, the people stood and uh, the teachers sat. But he's in the boat and uh, he's teaching but in parables. And what he's saying isn't altogether clear on the surface level, but his parables contain the secrets to the kingdom of heaven. And we see that in uh, chapter 13, verse 11. These, these parables have secrets. So what are the secrets at the heart of these parables? What exactly is Jesus saying about the kingdom of heaven? 
And are these parables more important than the fishing trawler riddle from Eric Cantona? I think the answer to the last one is a, a resounding yes, they are more important. So let's turn to um, Matthew 13 now, 24 to 33. And Jesus here tells us three parables that are about growth. The first one, the, uh, the weed and the wheats, in a, in a broad outline, it seems to be about growth. Uh, the good seed, the wheat, is sown. It takes time to grow up before the harvest. And there's more details in that parable which we'll come to in a little while, but at its broadest it seems to be about something that's sown, that grows and gets harvested. The second one is the parable about the mustard seed, which starts out uh, as something that's tiny. It doesn't look very significant, and yet from its humble beginnings it grows to be something that could probably uh, stop a small truck or at least, uh, at the very least, hold some seagulls in its branches. The uh, yeast leads to spectacular growth. Those of you who've used those noisy bread machines uh, that seem to be on almost every kitchen in the country will know that you don't need very much yeast to mix into the dough uh, to have a great effect. But you have to still wait for the, for, the bread to, for the yeast to work through the bread, so there's a bit of time. Now, we could ask right away, what is the take-home message for us from all these parables? And that's a good thing to do, but not right yet. In the first instance, what did the people of Jesus' day make about these parables about the kingdom? When he started talking about the kingdom of God, or as Matthew puts it, the kingdom of heaven, he might have softened it a bit because the, the Jews didn't always like to use God's name, so he's, he's calling it the kingdom of heaven. What were they hoping for when they heard messages about the kingdom? Well, in the first place, they did remember the glory days when God's kingship was, was apparent in their nation, at the height of their days under their kings, David and Solomon. That was different to the experience that they were having living under the occupied forces of the Romans with a, a king, Herod, who wasn't really actually a Jew, he was an Idumean, comes from another part of Palestine. Uh, he was ruling over them as king, but the fact was he was still king under the Romans. Now, when they heard Jesus talking about the kingdom of heaven, they might have looked forward to some kind of spectacular triumph, that Jesus was the new revolutionary who was going to do the trick. And they'd hoped that it would come all at once, throw out the Romans. And we get a, a bit of a hint of this kind of hope in other parts of the Bible in Luke 24, the disciples on the road to Emmaus. They hoped that Jesus was going to restore or redeem Israel. That's what they were looking for, Israel to get sorted out. We see this also in Acts chapter 1, verse 6. They say to Jesus, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? But even though Jesus tells us that the kingdom has drawn near in his ministry and it is at hand, the take-home message of these parables is that, that it doesn't come all at once. The message from Jesus is the kingdom starts small. It looks pretty weak and insignificant, but it does grow. And one day it grows to maturity and there is the harvest. I don't know a great deal about farming, uh, but from the farmers that I've talked to who farm wheat, one of the best parts about that is when they take the head off the grain and watch the dollars roll into the silo. And so, yeah, there is this hope of something great to happen at the end. 
Now, for some of us, well, for all of us really, who live some 2,000 years later, uh, we know that Jesus' great victory was actually a vic- not, victory not so much over Romans and these occupied brutal people you know, taking taxes and things like that. This victory was really bigger. It's a victory over sin and death and it's for both the Jews and the Gentiles, people like us. And at the same time, we still wait patiently for the final kingdom to come, don't we? We live in this age where it would be nice if God's kingdom had sort of already arrived even within our lifetimes. Particularly as we're confronted with so many problems not only within the world but also the number of problems and challenges within our own lives as well. It would be nice if the kingdom did come straight away for us. And personally, if it did come straight away, I'd like it to come just before that acid hour in the afternoon where all the kids are tired and hungry and I've got to get them food. There's no guarantees. But in our age, one of the problems that we have is we're used to uh, things happening pretty quickly. We're used to fast food and pizzas that will be hot and ready on time. We're used to the express lanes at the supermarket where we can have things on demand pretty quick. But the fact is, uh, we're not God. Life's not like that. We've got to get used to and accept God's timing. And if we've got to do time, well, that's just how it is. So part of the challenge for us is to remain patient even while God's kingdom continues to grow. Uh, and in God's timing come to fruition. We're in point two of my outline now, about the division. Have you ever thought that it's odd that Jesus chose to get his message across in parables? How many marketing managers from companies like Coca-Cola, for example, would still have their jobs if they decided to market Coke by using cryptic kind of stories? I wonder how many would keep their jobs in that industry. We might expect that Jesus is going to promote his message a little bit differently. But Jesus works in a way that seems to be quite the opposite to the principles and the techniques that seem to be applied by the likes of Big Kev and Ronald McDonald. In verse 34, we learn that Jesus spoke all these things to the crowds in parables. You see that in verse 34? He did not say anything to them without using a parable. So why did he do that? Well, it appears that the parables seem to be a way of sifting the crowds. There are two main groups that are form, forming around Jesus. We've got the outsiders and the insiders. We've got the crowds and then there are the disciples, both the, the 12 and others who um, wanted to be on the inside. We know that from Mark chapter 4, verse 10. There were the sceptics who turned up probably hoping to see some kind of sideshow and there were the, the true believers who really had a living trust in what Jesus, who Jesus was and what he was going to do. And so the parables seem to work out in practice what we learnt from uh, what Scott taught us about the parable of the soul last week. Everybody hearing the same parable, it's the same word that they're all receiving. But it's only those who hear it and understand it who become the ones who seem to move from the outside to become the insiders and start to hear the explanation of these deep truths about what's at the heart of God's kingdom. And so even as people hear these parables, there's kind of a judgment that's taking place before the end time judgment as people seem to be confirmed in their unbelief 
or confirmed in their belief as they listen to the parables. And so the crowd gets divided according to how they value Jesus' words. Those who stood there on the bank of the lake in unbelief and all sceptical about Jesus and what he's got to say and said to his mate, yeah, what's he rabbiting on about, Paul? What's this all about mustard and yeast? Well, that kind of person's unlikely to stick around and think through and mull over what's actually at the heart of the parables. And so the saying in uh, 13 verse 12, whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. In fact, it's that person who hears these parables and says, that's ridiculous. What are you talking about mustard seeds for? Well, you know what? Chances are, even that little bit that they heard, they'll probably forget anyway because they don't value it. He who does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. He'll probably even forget that. But the opposite's also true, isn't it? Jesus says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. He's saying, that's code for, think about it. The one who does spend time saying, yeah, I think there's something in these parables. I think he's got a point here. I wonder what it is. Let's try and work it out. As they do think about it, they might move towards the insiders and start talking to them and hearing, for argument's sake, Jesus' explanations about what they are about because he does give some explanations. And so 13 verse 12 rings again for the faithful. Whoever has will be given more and he will have an abundance. So there's a division between people over Jesus and his teaching. And of course, that's how things are in our society as well. Some people submit to Jesus as Lord and others don't. When I teach my scripture class, there's some kids who are with me and they're on song and they want to know about it and get into it and there's others who can't stand it and it's kind of challenging working with them. They probably find me challenging too. But why is it that things are this way? Well, what the next explanation of the parable of the wheat and weeds tells us is that even this scenario of the world with the way it is, that some people live with Jesus Lord and some don't, this is still not outside God's control. Let's have a look from Matthew 13, 36, uh, the parable or the explanation of the wheat and the weeds. 13, 36, then he left the crowd and went into the house. His disciples came to him and said, explain, us, explain to us, the parable of the weeds in the field. He answered, the one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed stands for the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels. They will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. In this passage we see that there's more going on in the world than meets the eye. The Son of Man sows the good seed and that seems to be saying that Jesus himself is ultimately the one 
uh, our salvation originates from. And that's because Jesus refers to himself regularly as the Son of Man, which harks back to that figure that we've looked at from Daniel chapter 7. So our salvation has its origins in God. We learn that the good seed represents the sons of the kingdom and the weeds represent sons of the evil one. It's not clear to us in this age always who are the sons of the kingdom and who aren't. Uh, The gospel message goes out and at different times it seems to take root in people's lives and we don't always see things happening when we've um, we've sown the message. I know when I was in year nine and uh, a friend of mine shared with me the truth about Jesus as Lord and I came to terms with it, he doesn't know really what's happened in my life since those days. Uh, He doesn't know that I'm trying to pass that great news on to my kids and kids at school and youth group and whatnot. Um, And that seems to be the character of this age. We don't always see the the results right now, but it's, it's actually still working. And furthermore, we don't see a judgment day right now for the evil that's in this world either. It seems that uh, God doesn't come and intervene straight away when something unjust happens. There is there's a sense in which we're getting the idea of a, an end game judgment, but it doesn't happen straight away. And so this passage is helpful for us because it helps us not to be naive. Naive about the fact that there are some people who don't actually turn to Christ. We can't uh, live in a world where we think that Everybody will. That's, that's not part of the way things are. And we're also reminded that one of the dimensions of the kingdom is that there is those who actually inherit the kingdom, who are subjects of it, are the righteous. These are the true believers, the faithful. Uh, it's not going to be inhabited by anyone else. And so what we see is that not only is, uh, are things divisive as Jesus speaks to the crowds, as uh, people warm to him or are sceptical, uh, the kingdom's divisive at the end of all time in any case. There are those who are in and there are those who are out. We can't expect in this age that everybody is going to think the same way as we do. As Christians, we've got to get used to the idea that Some things will bother us as Christians that don't bother a whole lot of other people. There are some laws that we think should be made which a whole lot of other people don't think should be made. And if we've been people who've uh, received God's work in our lives to change us, to save us and to then have the privilege and the responsibility to live as his people, to some extent we've got to see that the burden of change in our society to do the right things might rest with us as Christians. It won't necessarily come from people who don't know God. The reason why I'm raising these things is because I was caught up recently in some of the the outrage going on down at the Westport Park for a development that might include uh, a big boat shed or something like that. I was noticed there was quite a lot of outrage in town over this park and personally not as a representative of this church per se but as an Australian citizen and as having democratic rights and whatnot I actually signed a petition to say that I don't think they should trash that park 
And I agree that there might be other Christians who think differently on that matter uh, and would like the development in, and I'm glad that we live in a democracy. But one of the things that intrigued me most about this whole scenario was that, you know, it's one of the first times that I've really sort of rung up a politician about, about this event uh, and had a little bit of outrage about it. And yet, there's all these people who have outrage about this park because it seems to wreck a leisure town, but there's a whole lot of other issues in our society that people aren't outraged by. And so as Rob Oakeshott rang me up when I was at school and talked to me on the mobile phone about this park, I also asked him about, uh, is there any room for re re reforming abortion in Australia? Now that's a complex and sensitive topic, isn't it? But did you know that there are 90,000, about 90,000 abortions taking place in Australia every year? And there are only about 250,000 live births, which is one abortion to every 2.8 children being born. That's a phenomenal figure. There are a whole lot of other statistics which you can get on Google and look up about uh, the level of abortion in Australia, uh, which are easy access and it's not great. But it doesn't seem that there's a whole lot of outrage in our society about that topic. There's lots of outrage about a park that might get a boat shed put on it, but where is it going to come from to have outrage against topics like that? Well, if it doesn't come from the Christians, the sons of the light, the sons of the kingdom, where will it come from? At one stage, society accepted things like slavery until people like William Wilberforce worked very hard to reform society and attitudes to abolish slavery. That was a situation that was happily accepted by many people, but it wasn't happily accepted by the slaves. So whatever social issues uh, that you're thinking about or working on, let me encourage you to keep thinking about how the principles of God's words apply to how we should live and that the burden of community conscience might rest with us. Whatever topic you're working on socially, I think that's a good thing to, to wrestle through, but the text here today reminds us that those social issues still are limited to this age. The most important thing that God's word reminds us of is that the kingdom is key. We should be promoting the kingdom. And some people will be feeding the poor, but not everyone's going to be promoting the kingdom. That's certainly that burden rests with us. And that's what we see in these next two paragraphs uh, in parables in Matthew chapter 13. If you'd kindly turn to Matthew 13, I'll read from verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Jesus reminds us that there are some people who, see, who can see clearly, crystal clear, the significance of the kingdom of heaven. And they do whatever it takes to hang on to it. They grab the opportunity with two hands. Reminded me of an illustration from cricket where a few years ago there was a World Cup match being played with Australia and South Africa. 
I'm pretty sure it was uh, Alan Donald who uh, had a catch which he thought he had. Someone told me it was Herschel Gibbs. Uh, and he was all very happy about catching this ball, which might have meant that his team got the World Cup. And you could see the replays, the big smile on his face. But that smile changed as the ball rolled out of his hands and ended up on the ground. Well, how would you feel dropping a very important catch which might have cost you the game? And to add insult to injury, Steve Waugh gave him a big sledge and said, how does it feel to drop the World Cup? <laughs> if you weren't already feeling bad, <laughs> I would have ridden you into the ground. Well, maybe so. But cricket, after all, is only a game. Isn't it? How would you feel if you found the, the pearl of great value and you were home, going home on the boat and you decide to chuck it up and down? The boat lurched and the pearl went into the deep. <laughs> that would be a pretty bad day, wouldn't it? But even more, how would we feel missing out on the kingdom? How would we feel dropping that ball? Well, people might value cricket, and there's probably some people who do that. Yeah, they're going to miss out on a lot of money too if they miss out on a cricket game. Some like too. But cricket still is only a game, and the seriousness of what we're looking at today is about eternity. Okay, so we've still got to get the right perspective on life, don't we? Eternity, we've got to grasp hold of and see how it eats into the presence, the present day. So let's have a look at Matthew 13, verse 47, and look at the, the seriousness of uh, eternity from the perspective of the parable of the net. Matthew 13, 47. Once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore. Then they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets, but threw the bad away. And this is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Well, we're reminded from this parable that the world's not just going in cycles, you know, same thing happening over again. The world is actually going somewhere. God's taking it to a particular destination and that destination is the judgment day. There is a day when there will be justice for all the wicked things that have happened in the world. And the important thing for us is that we don't get rolled up in that, but that we get right with God and enjoy his mercy while we can. It's a serious business. People's eternity is a serious thing. And so we've got to continue to retain our focus on the important things, to hold on to it and to pass it on. The insights that Jesus gives us from these parables aren't in conflict with God's plans in the past to save his people. On the contrary, the insights that Jesus is bringing to our attention are actually the fulfilment of God's plans for the salvation of the world. We see something of this in the next couple of parables in 1351. Have you understood all these things? Jesus asked. Yes, they replied. He said to them, Therefore, every teacher of the law has been instructed about the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. The news of the kingdom of heaven as Jesus brings it in is the fulfilment of God's plans and so it can be compared to new treasure. 
So as we sit as people in our homes reading our Bibles week in, week out, what we're looking at is new treasure. This is great stuff. And it's the sort of thing that we should really prize and value. Uh, Even though it's easy to get distracted and it's hard work to read the Bible, we should be making it a priority to keep on chipping away at it and realising this is gold. This is great for our souls. It helps us to get assured in our knowledge of God, assured of the salvation that he's put on the table for us. And it helps us to know increasingly what God requires of us as his people. And so we've got to see the, the things of God's word as treasure. Well, can you see the significance of the kingdom of heaven? Or is it hidden? Jesus tells us in these parables that the kingdom doesn't come all in one hit, but that we've got to be patient in this age and submit to God's timing. He tells us that we can't expect that everybody is going to get right with God, that there's going to be division, and that if people don't want to come near you because you're a Christian, well, we've got to accept that that's how things are. At the same time, it's our responsibility as Christians to submit to Jesus and live with him as Lord. And furthermore, we've got to think carefully about how we're going to live in this world, how we're going to act out our faith, uh, when we can't expect everybody to think about the best way to live from God's point of view. And finally, we learn that the kingdom of heaven is extremely valuable. Let's not get lulled into thinking that this is not critical stuff. The kingdom's worth so much that it's worth grabbing with two hands and holding on. We need to hold on to the Lord Jesus and enjoy living as members of his kingdom even now. Well, let's bow in a word of prayer. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you that uh, you are kind, that you do choose to bring in your kingdom to maturity, not all at once, but in your good timing. Father, we do pray that your kingdom would come. We pray that that would come soon and that we avoid some of the hardships and problems in this age and the difficulties. But Father, we do pray also today for patience. We pray that you would help us to accept your timing and not get cranky about it, but just to persevere. Father, we also pray that you would help us to be people who are obedient to you, knowing that not everybody will choose to love and serve you and live your way, but we pray that you would strengthen us in that process. Lord God, we pray that you would help us to think carefully about the way that you call us to live and the priorities that you have for this world. And Father, we pray that you would help us to be something of the the conscience of the community to live your way. Father, we also pray that you would help us to remember how valuable your kingdom is and to keep our focus on it, to keep our eyes fixed on our Lord Jesus and to live with our trust in him. Father, we pray that you would help us to enjoy living as members of your kingdom already, but uh, help us to persevere until your kingdom comes in all its glory. We thank you for this time today and we pray that you would strengthen us this week. And we pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.